The Talking Points podcast is produced in partnership with C. Michael Gibson and clinicaltrialresults.org. Mike Gibson and John Tierley coming to you virtually from AHA 2020. John, good to see you again. Lovely to see you as well. It's great. So, John, uh, congratulations on the uh, galactic heart failure study. Talk to us a little bit about the mechanism of action of this drug and the background. Sure. Well, the, the principle on this study actually derives from a long time ago in, in one of the discussions with one of my early mentors and continued heroes, uh, Mark Pfeffer, when I was in his lab as a medical student, Mark would say that, there, that, that heart failure is some a good news and bad news. And, and the bad news is heart failure is a progressive disease state that causes you know, frequent hospitalizations and it ultimately ends in death. But the good news is because it's a process that develops over time, there are opportunities to intervene. And we've clearly seen a lot of um, advances in terms of the neurohormonal cascade and other ways to intervene in that process. But the one area where we've seen absolutely no progress for over a century has been in the area of trying to improve systolic function in a way that translates into these improved clinical outcomes and does so in a safe manner. And, and that's so, the key, right, John, a safe manner. I mean, we've had some drugs that improve contractility, but the penalty was higher mortality with some of them. Exactly, exactly. And so that's why omicamptin macarbol was developed, which is a very specific cardiac myosin activator. So it works specifically on the cardiac sarcomere. So we, it is now the first in class of this new group of agents known as myotropes that improve cardiac performance directly by improving, uh, you know, working on that sarcomere. And the way it works is, is, as you may know, that there, well, you certainly know, um, <laughs> there, there, you know, the interaction between myosin and actin is what makes the heart contract. And myosin um, splits ATP and then looks for actin to hold onto and pull against. And what Omicaptin Macarbel does is it basically takes those myosin hands and makes it more likely that they will be able to pull on the actin rope of the myocardial cell, producing this greater contractility and contraction. And it does so in a way that doesn't increase myocardial oxygen demand, doesn't increase um, calcium fluxes, and doesn't increase, um, hopefully, poor outcomes. And that yeah. was the purpose of the trial. John, tell us the differences between a myotrope and an inotrope. So, so inotropes are agents that in general improve cardiac contractility. And what we've done, and, and Mitch Saka, who's an up and coming star in heart failure, um, wrote a very nice article in Jack where, where he and a, and a group of us defined three new categories of how do we look at inotropy. So there are the calcitropes and calcitropes are what we think of as the classic positive inotropes. These are the catecholamines and the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, and they all work by increasing intracellular calcium. And as we discussed, those all have had deleterious effects. The second class are called mitotropes, or agents that might improve cardiac performance by improving the energetics of the cell. 
And so these are things like perhexylene, trimetazidine, perhaps renolazine, and maybe actually the SGLT2 inhibitors. That right. may be one of That's their- leading theory out there that they're really part of that class, right? Exactly. So, and then the third class are the myotropes, the agents that actually work directly on the sarcomere and, and that scaffolding. And so as of yet- all, These are all inotropes, but they're specific now subgroups of inotropes. Yes, and, and that's kind of the, the emerging nomenclature. Do we have any other data other than galactic heart failure on the myotropes? Is this the first real test of this class? So we had the COSMIC HF trial, which was a 450-ish patient phase two study. And that was with omicamptive macarbal in three groups, a, a placebo group, a fixed dose group, and an, and an pharmacokinetically up guided up titration group. And in the pharmacokinetically up, up uh, titrated group or PK group, we saw improvements in uh, or prolongation systolic ejection time, which is in heart failure, systolic ejection time is shortened. So this is actually normalizing it. There was an increase in stroke volume and decreases in systolic um, dimension and volumes, as well as after six month therapy, decreases in end diastolic um, volumes and dimensions, suggestive of this potential for beneficial cardiac remodeling. Yeah. In addition, we saw a reduction in heart rate consistent with the sympathetic withdrawal, very minor, about two beats per minute, as well as significant reductions in NT-pro BNP. So that really laid the foundational groundwork for galactic HF. So a lot of positive biomarker data suggesting the hypothesis that this might work uh, to improve clinical outcomes with that. And now you tested out the clinical outcomes here in Galactic. Yes, and, and so Galactic HF was the first time to, to try to actually see whether it affected these clinical re clinically relevant events. And so in this trial, we enrolled patients who who were had symptomatic chronic heart failure, left ventricular ejection fractions less than or equal to 35%. Um, their NYHA class was two to four, and um, they had elevated natriuretic peptides at, at baseline, but not markedly elevated, and were already receiving standard of care therapy at that time. Um, in addition, since we wanted to include kind of the full range of heart failure patients, 25% of the patients in Galactic HF were enrolled as inpatients. Um, and so we have that kind of group to, to, to kind of look at and, and evaluate in the trial. And what did you find? So <laughs> we had 8,256 patients, so split roughly equally. And I think as a tribute to our investigators, I want to really call this out because the investigators, when you have 935 investigators in 35 countries, you can't give due credit to each one individually. But they did a phenomenal job such that only one patient was lost to follow-up for vital status out of wow. 8,256. So well, they I really know. did. I focus a lot on that, John. That's uh, every trial now. You know, I get that number close to zero. One is amazing. Great. Point. Yeah. So yeah, thank you. So, and thank you to our investigators for, for, for doing that. And um, so, so the result of the study was that we had showed the primary composite outcome was time to first heart failure event or cardiovascular death. And this was significantly improved by a, um, a relative risk reduction, a hazard ratio reduction of 8% with a p-value of 0.0252.
And the components of this were the um, time to first heart failure event, which was reduced by 7%. And that was not a pre-specified thing, but we presented as something to give an insight into where, where did this effect come from. And there was no beneficial effect in terms of cardiovascular death. So, uh, which was a pre-specified secondary endpoint. Interestingly, it directionally went in the right direction. It didn't achieve statistical significance. Um, actually, it, it was pretty neutral. Neutral, okay. The, the cardiovascular death was, was pretty much straight on in terms of no, showing no difference statistically between the two groups. Oh, interestingly, we also looked at symptom improvement um, and, and so we, because we knew that inpatients and outpatients would start out in very different ways, um, we split them and did what was known as a, a joint omnibus test overall to say, hey, is there a difference somewhere amongst these groups? And that p-value is 0 0.028. Yeah, I said that right. So is that like an interaction term? Uh, well, the, the... yeah, it's looking at saying, okay, we're, we don't care which of these groups it is, but is there one of these groups that's different? Mm -hmm. And that 0 0.028 though, actually, while clearly less than 0.05, was not less than the pre-specified split alpha that we gave to it, which was 0 0.002. So we can't claim any benefit in that regard, but there's some intriguing data there, as there usually is in these trials, where we have about a 2.5 point improvement or difference between placebo and omicantum carbol in the inpatient group, which is usually a sicker group. Sure. Now, 2.5 sounds like a small number, but as you know, and most of our other listeners say, know, even, you know, in the, in the current trials, um, most of those are showing a one point and maybe a 2.1, 2.2 difference in the KCCQ total symptom score. So this is actually a substantial improvement in symptoms as a hypothesis generating uh, <laughs> finding. Um, other things we found was that within the subgroups, there was no difference in this beneficial effect in any of the major subgroups with one intriguing, tantalizing finding. And that was that in the subgroup, when we split the groups on the median of ejection fraction based on 28% ejection fraction, the patients who had an ejection fraction less than or equal to 28%, which represents 4,400 patients. So this is not a small subgroup. Um, they had a 16% reduction in the overall endpoint, suggesting that, and this kind of makes sense, right? Because if omicantamacarbal improves cardiac function, then you might suggest that patients who have worse cardiac function might derive greater benefit. And so that is one of the intriguing findings that we saw. You know, one of the outcomes patients care a lot about is, am I alive and am I out of the hospital? You presented information, it was kind of a KM estimate, but it was really kind of percentages. Did you compare the number of days out of the hospital or days alive and out of the hospital, which is a very patient-centric endpoint, particularly for people who are feeling sick with heart failure? Absolutely, and that's a, a great idea and is part of the analyses. Um, as, as those who are very close to trial know, this, this read out closer to our primary readout than almost any trial. Um, so we still have a lot of work to do, but that's a really great point. And, and we'll add it to the list, although it's already there. I mean, days sure. alive out of hospitals is really, is an important um, sure. evaluation. What's next, uh, what's next for the drug? 
Well, so as we kind of alluded to earlier, one of the things that was really unique was there were the, in terms of the adverse event profile, there was no change in systolic blood pressure, a mild decrease in heart rate as we saw before, consistent with a kind of sympathetic withdrawal, no change in creatinine, no change in potassium. So this drug is something that really pretty clearly can be used pretty much any time with any of our current medical therapies. Now, in terms of where to use it, obviously we have what I think are now the four pillars of chronic heart failure therapy. And these include the RNEs or the angiotensin receptor blocker, neprilysin inhibitors, the beta blockers, the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and now I think the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, so, so, and those all reduced mortality. So that's, they have to have some primacy in that regard. The advantage that the place where I see Omicantive really working is it is because it doesn't, it can be pretty much given to anybody in terms of their, their um, blood pressures and heart rates. We let patients in the trial with blood pressures down to 85. Oh. Um, so, you know, we, we had a very broad inclusion criteria. And if you look at, and you have to be careful how you look at subgroup analyses, but if you look at things, if you look at the sicker kind of groups, the New York Heart Association class three, four, the lower blood pressure, those were the groups where actually they were trended to be more beneficial effect from omicantive than the placebo. So this may be a drug that's really useful in the very patients where we're actually withdrawing the RNEs, we're taking off the beta blockers, we're taking away the MRAs because of their advanced disease. This may be a drug that can work there as well as in the general population that we studied in Galactic HF. Wow, great work, Sean. Congratulations. And you know, I know how hard it is to round up 8,000 people and see if people are dead or alive. This amazing uh, follow-up. We have very great confidence then in the results. Thanks for joining us and sharing. And thanks to all of you for joining us here, at least virtually from AHA 2020. It's a real pleasure. Thank you.